Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for hanging with us today. Republicans on Capitol Hill regain control of the House of Representatives today. The GOP holds a small four-vote majority, which includes George Santos, a newly elected Republican from New York, who fabricated virtually everything about his life history. He is facing multiple calls to resign and several investigations. An internecine battle for Speaker of the House is underway at this hour. The GOP four-vote majority isn't enough to overcome the block of five Republicans who have vowed not to support Kevin McCarthy. As many as 15 more Republicans may not support McCarthy's bid as well. Over the last several weeks and up to last night and this morning, the California Republican has made more and more promises intended to appease his opponents. If Republicans can't agree on McCarthy on a first ballot, it would be only the second time since the Civil War that multiple ballots would be cast for the office that is third in line for the presidency. The House has assembled at this hour. Nancy Pelosi uh, gaveled out the 117th Congress. The 118th Congress cannot be sworn in until they elect a speaker. So we will see how this all plays out. The floor vote is scheduled for this hour at some point. So stay tuned for continuing coverage on Here and Now and later today on All Things Considered. Today on Midday, as Maryland Governor-elect Wes Moore prepares to take charge in Annapolis, a conversation about the legacy of Larry Hogan, the popular two-term Republican governor who will hand over the reins of state government to Mr. Moore two weeks from tomorrow. Joining me are two reporters who covered the Hogan administration. Pamela Wood is the politics and government reporter for our partner news organization, The Baltimore Banner. Hey, Pamela, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And Brian Sears is here as well. He's a veteran Annapolis reporter for The Daily Record. Hey, Brian. Hi. How are you? We're doing fine. Thanks. And listeners, we'd like to hear from you. What do you think? of Larry Hogan's tenure in office, his two terms as governor. Uh, He was popular, at least according to polls, with Democrats and independents as well as Republicans. We'd like to hear what you think, how you assess Larry Hogan's time in office. 410-662-8780. That's the number to call to weigh in. Our email is midday at wipr.org, and you can tweet us at midday. WIPR. So Pamela Wood, um, Mr. Hogan leaves office in a couple of weeks, uh, maintaining uh, an amazing popularity percentage, according to polls. He's one of the most popular governors in the country. He's a Republican in a heavily Democratic state. How do you account for Mr. Hogan's uh, enduring popularity? Yeah, you're right. He, If you look at the polls, he has had unprecedentedly high uh, approval ratings throughout. I mean, the if you look at the Goucher College poll, for example, you know, the first one right after he take, took office was, you know, kind of so-so, but once it was a few months in, he's been in the, you know, the 60s, sometimes touching 70% the, the whole time. And, uh, you know, voters, you know, returned him to office uh, for a second term uh, for eight years. I mean, one thing he told me in a recent interview was that he hopes people uh, appreciated his kind of um, down to earth, every man personality that he was uh, really, you know, cared and wanted to do the best for Marylanders. And I, I think that's part of it, the personality, perhaps a little bit more than the policy, because frankly, he wasn't super successful in that regard. And Brian Sears, um, what about that? I mean, this sort of every man persona that uh, Larry Hogan has been able to 
you know, perpetuate uh, in his time in office. Uh, I've only met the governor once. Uh, he appeared on this program back in 2018, um, and he has not appeared since. Um, and so I don't know him at all. Um, you cover him. You've, you've hung out with him. You've seen him uh, interact with folks. Uh, is that uh, persona that we see, this sort of everyman uh uh, you know, man of the people type. Uh, is that what he's really like? I, I look, I mean, I have, so first of all, I have to be careful about the use of the, the use of the phrase hung out with him. Um, that, that probably confers a little more of a relationship than, um, than I actually have. But I, I think it's hard to know anybody that you don't get to spend time with off the job. That being said, um, I, I do think that the governor, um, has this person his personality is pretty much what we see he's self-deprecating he's quick-witted he's disciplined um he really enjoys retail politics in a way that i've not seen many governors that i've covered um enjoy retail politics and i think a lot of what we see in terms of his his popular uh, popularity numbers and his job approval numbers really is is, is sort of a part and parcel of of, of how much people like him as a person um, and, and how he connects with people. And Pamela Wood, uh, what's your impression of his relationship with individual legislators uh, in the General Assembly? Is he is he popular with them? Is he is he friendly with them uh, uh, when it comes to uh, to moving uh, policy initiatives? As you mentioned, uh, he had certainly uh, several that he was not able to move. But um, do, does, do the folks in the General Assembly on both sides of the aisle, um, do they like him? Well, the governor has had a very uh, specific strategy with the Maryland General Assembly, and it's actually largely a hands-off strategy. In eight years, he never went down to a committee to testify in person on any of his priorities. Um, bills that he said were, you know, top of his list, for example, um, some criminal justice legislation to have some stiffer penalties for repeat offenders who use guns. You know, he put that in year after year. But, but didn't put a lot of muscle behind it and then, uh, you know, criticize the General Assembly for not uh, passing it. Um, so he hasn't had the same relationship that prior governors have had where they have been, you know, down in, you know, in these committees having lots of meetings with lawmakers. That said, I do know that um, he has relationships with some of them and on, on, a, on a personal level. Uh, they do get along. There, there have been a few times where he has worked uh, with lawmakers, particularly uh, in the pandemic with financial relief uh, for Marylanders and using the federal money that came in. He did work closely with Speaker of the House Adrian Jones and Senate President Bill Ferguson. Pamela Wood is the politics reporter and government reporter at the Baltimore Banner. Brian Sears is with us as well. He reports on government for the Daily Record. It's midday. We're talking about Larry Hogan and his legacy as he prepares to leave office after two terms. 410-662-8780. That's our number. Our email midday at WIPR.org. And you can tweet us at midday WIPR. So, Brian, um, you've covered a lot of governors. Um, uh, how is... How would you assess Governor Hogan's relationship with the press uh, and uh, with with the folks you know around the state uh, who cover him? Uh, look, I mean, I think you know, I think he's his relationship with the press is kind of like his relationship with uh, the legislature. I think they're sort of um, two Larry Hogan's. I think there are, there are times where um, you can you can like a guy personally, like he. 
And Brian, we're and having again, some... he's self-deprecating. It's hard to hard to not quality in somebody. And Brian, we're having some trouble with your uh, Zoom connection, so we're going to see if we can uh, get that fixed, and we will come back to you uh, in a second or two. Um, Pamela Wood, when it comes to the experience that Larry Hogan brought to office, um, it was negligible, just as the experience in terms of direct government executive experience uh, is negligible with, well, it's non-existent with the incoming governor, Wes Moore. So in that way, they share uh, a similar background. Uh, Larry Hogan worked in the Ehrlich administration uh, as the appointment secretary for a little while, but he never uh, held political office. He tried a couple of times. He ran for Congress uh, against Steny Hoyer and was not uh, successful in that bid some years ago. Um, when it comes to uh, his uh, you know, his, his sort of grounding uh, and his political persona, which he, he tried to uh, tell people when he was running in 2014 for the first time, you know, I'm not a politician. I'm a small businessman. Um, we heard that a lot from him during that campaign. Um, has that has that part of his persona, is that part of his brand, if you will, uh, held up uh, after eight years of being uh, clearly, <laughs> at least in my view, a very adroit politician? Yeah, so Governor Hogan definitely portrayed himself as a small businessman, but of course, uh, it's a it's a very successful, you know, real estate, uh, you know, brokerage firm, um, you know, not exactly a mom and pop uh, retail shop. Uh, but he he doesn't emphasize he actually did have ex- significant experience in politics. You recall that he grew up watching his father, Larry Hogan Sr., as a member of Congress and as a Prince George's County Executive. He worked briefly. Uh, Larry Hogan Jr. worked briefly uh, in Prince George's County government when he was young. And those four years he spent as Governor Bob Ehrlich's appointment secretary, that's a very behind the scenes role, but it allowed him to have really a front seat to how Governor Ehrlich governed and led the state. And he learned from you know, what worked and what didn't work for Governor Ehrlich. And I think he really applied those lessons when it came time for him to govern. So Governor Hogan, you know, he wasn't a county executive, he wasn't a mayor, but he did have a lot of um, political intelligence and acuity coming in. Uh, Governor-elect Wes Moore uh, hasn't had those same experiences. He uh, spent a year in the White House as a fellow in his 20s, uh, you know, 20 years ago or so. Um, and he, he doesn't have experience, as much experience in state and local government. So we'll, we'll see how that turns out for him. And Brian Sears, I mean, given the fact that you've, you know, observed uh, several governors uh, in action, what are the, the big lessons you think that Westmore should look to take from Larry Hogan as he begins his tenure in a couple of weeks? Uh, look, I think it's going to be very diff- different for a Democrat um, governor because the Democrats, you know, Democrats control the legislature and presumably you're all sort of rowing in the same direction. I think everyone anticipates that there'll be more communication between uh, between the two branches of government. Um, The current governor had a very different strategy. You know, he tended to be very hands off when the General Assembly was in town. Sometimes he was even a little disdainful of of their presence in Annapolis and, and made no bones about the fact that when they were here, he would use every opportunity he had to sort of get out out of Annapolis. And, and see Maryland and, and, and go do other things. Um, I, so I, so I think it's going to be, it's going to be very different. Um, a lot of lawmakers who are coming in have never been here. 
Um, a lot of Democrats have never been here when there was a Democrat governor. So I think that there's going to be a real interesting sort of dynamic here. It's going to it's it's going to be a very different four years than what they were probably used to, uh, especially if they came in at the same time that Larry Hogan did. We have an email from Christopher who says, I consider Larry Hogan the worst governor I've seen in my lifetime for botching the purple line, killing the red line, state center, and firing toll workers. I must admit he was good at the thing that Republicans are popular for. He said the bill for the future is not due yet, that we didn't need to make significant investment in clean energy, transit, or in preparing for climate change. From Tim, he emails, at least some of his underlings left much to be desired. The Secretary of Health has gutted many agencies that are now trying to hire folks as contractual employees rather than regular employees, meaning that in addition to a low salary, they have no benefits or holidays. He's also alienated a great deputy secretary for behavioral health who left the department after the current secretary took over. Um, Pamela Wood, what about the argument that Larry Hogan uh, and his supporters make that he was uh, more than willing to work across the aisle. Um, when when Mr. Hogan has given interviews to you and others, um, he often brings this up and says, this is the kind of politician he is. Compromise is not a dirty word to him. Um, he is has always worked across the aisle. Does that contention hold up? That certainly is what Governor Hogan talks about a lot when he does national interviews, when he's going around the country as he's, you know, making his 2024 uh, options and, and seeing if there's support there. I'm not sure that's exactly what we've seen in Maryland. Yes, there have been a few times where uh, the governor or Republican has worked with Democratic lawmakers, again, on, on some of the pandemic measures. There were some criminal justice reforms uh, in his first term uh, known as uh, justice reinvestment or earlier in his tenure. Uh, and, and he and his staff worked hard on that. Um, but there's there's not a lot of examples that he can give. Now, one thing that he did not do that other Republican governors sometimes do is um, fight these these culture wars, these battles, you know, going to war, trying to curtail abortion rights or you know, restrict um, trans students from participating in sports, this this kind of business that the current Republican Party is very into. He just shoved all that aside and didn't even go there and, and focused on, uh, you know, more economic and criminal justice policies rather than um, th those kinds of battles. He, he didn't do those kind of battles. So in that respect, he is different from other Republicans. But um, there, there's not a lot of, of bullet points on that list of you know, compromise uh, in, in his term. Let's go to the phones. Uh, Dr. Jawad is on the phone from Baltimore. Uh, Dr. Jawad, I understand you are a retired state worker. Is that correct? Yes, uh, Tom. Indeed, uh, pleasure. Thanks for taking my call to you and your guests. Uh, Happy New Year. I just wanted to echo that um, I, as a um, former transportation official, I felt um, um, a pain when the, the governor Former now former governor um, uh, elected to strike the red line. I saw it as um, poking the finger into the face of those who may not have voted for him in Baltimore City that we didn't deserve. As as I said, I have walked around the state uh, seeing different projects funded and um, felt good when I saw the FEIS document for the red line. Uh, in, in an environmental document that had to be presented to the public. 
And I felt that in that, oh, something is finally being done for the city, knowing how much was being spent in the highways around the state. And, and, and to see that it was it just scratched like that, it said that um, you didn't acknowledge or didn't want to publicly engage with the 300, for those, that 300 million that was spent, already spent on the project, as well as the many hundreds and hundreds of state citizens that was working toward this project. That um, disengagement, and in the same token, uh, on the other side, when COVID came in, he was readily able to go to um, uh, Korea regarding the mass and so on. So it showed that um, you had personalized your, your governorship to the, to the extent that it would be hurting the citizens. And I couldn't sit by today and not call in and say that was one of his Achilles heel that he did not um, see the red, red line yeah. project go through. All right. Well, Dr. Jawad, thank you very much for your comment. And Brian Sears, it's, it does seem that uh, the words red line and Larry Hogan will be forever linked, uh, you know, certainly for people here in Baltimore. Uh, that project, uh, it was a huge disappointment when it was uh, vetoed by the governor, uh, you know, eight or nine months into his first term. Yeah, I certainly think that in certain certain segments, he will be forever tied to that project and and his description of it as a as a boondoggle. Um, but the fact is, is that you know for eight years we've you know there's been a lot of discussion about his nixing of the red line. Um, but in the end, very very little in the way of, of political ramifications. I mean, it's come up in a number of times in in uh, Malia Cromer's polls over in Goucher that that people generally have this as an issue. Um, but again. The, the governor's poll numbers and, and most of the polls that the public sees and that we see, um, he's generally he's generally well thought of and still popular. Um, so while it is in the red line is an issue for certain segments, um, it's probably not as broad based an issue as it might seem for those who are very passionate about it. Brian Sears is the government reporter for The Daily Record. Pamela Wood is the politics and government reporter for The Baltimore Banner. You can join our conversation about Larry Hogan and his legacy when we return from a quick break. Our number, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at wipr.org. You can tweet at midday wipr. You can follow me at Tom Hall, wipr. Stay with us. This is your public radio, 88.1 WYPR. I'm Al Waller. I'm Catherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow, it's midday with the mayor. 
Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott will join me, and our theater critic, Jay Wynn Russick, will share a conversation with New Yorker staff writer D.T. Max about his new book about the great Stephen Sondheim. So that's on the way tomorrow. If you've just joined us today, we're talking with Brian Sears of The Daily Record and Pamela Wood of The Baltimore Banner about the legacy of Larry Hogan as he prepares to leave the governor's office after two terms in which he maintained one of the highest approval ratings of any governor in the country. To join us, we're at 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org. And to tweet us, it's at midday wypr. So, Pamela, we have an email from Gary who says, please address Mr. Hogan's change of Maryland gun carry regulations. I see it as a pander for Republican higher office. So he did uh, authorize a change in the regulations about uh, concealed carry weapons here in Maryland. Uh, Remind us what he did. And do you think uh, that uh, that kind of thing and uh, any other things that come to mind that he's done uh, in the eight years he's been in office uh, do uh, prepare him for a possible presidential run nationally with the Republican Party? Well, first to explain what happened with gun permits, the wear and carry permit, that's what it's called. Most of us would think of it as a concealed carry permit. For many years in Maryland, the legal standard you had to prove in order to get a permit was a good and substantial reason. So that was often given to um, people who had had threats about them, people who worked in security, maybe small business owners who carried cash. You had to show that there was a reason you needed to carry your gun. And uh, New York had a very similar law, and it got struck down by the Supreme Court earlier this year. It was a decision known as the Bruin decision. And because Maryland's law was so similar to New York, uh, the legal analysis was that Maryland's uh, standard of good and substantial reason to carry a gun wouldn't hold up. So the decision was made to stop enforcing that. Um, So I think Governor Hogan really had very little discretion there. It was really the Supreme Court ruling that kind of forced Maryland to make that change. Um, How that plays um, on a national level um, is certainly Republicans favor Second Amendment, you know, gun rights and often easier access to carrying guns. But it also wasn't something that Governor Hogan really did himself. They can really credit the Supreme Court for that. And Brian Sears, I understand we have you on the phone now because our Zoom connection wasn't working so well. But um, in terms of criminal justice reform, it seems uh, that that perhaps uh, is the area that the governor feels somewhat disappointed uh, about what's uh, transpired over the past eight years. There were uh, bills that he was uh, very much behind to uh, uh, create mandatory minimum sentences and to increase sentences for uh, violent offenders, but he wasn't able to get them through the legislature. Um, wh- what do you make of that? Was was he reading the the public sentiment correctly, or uh, was he uh, was the legislature uh, more reflective of where the public is when it comes to? Uh, that the, the 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 incarceration policy, if nothing else, it's it, so it's it's hard to it's hard to sort of know um, what the public sentiment is specifically on some of his pol- on some of his proposed policies, just because there wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of public uh, public polling. Uh, what we do know is that year in and year out, public safety is one of the top issues that that you know that the public has along with education and the economy. 
Um, that being said, you know, he really had a hard time getting his proposals um, through the House. He was able to get them out of the Senate. Um, but, the, but the House, which uh, tends to be a, a little bit more progressive, uh, they, they did not see eye to eye on those policies. And so his bills never moved. Um, and, and so I, I think in terms of what we've seen the last couple of years, specifically with wanting some more, you know, stiffer penalties for more violent offenders, mandatory minimums for uh, violent offenders who use firearms. Um, it, it's one of the failures of the governor, but, um, but mostly because he didn't see eye to eye. Um, he, didn't, he didn't see eye to eye with, uh, with, the, with the House uh, all the time on that issue. And Pamela Wood, uh, back to this notion of uh, Mr. Hogan's uh, capacity for working across the aisle. Uh, one of the aisles he didn't cross was the aisle between him and uh, Baltimore State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby or Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott. They uh, clashed heads uh, a lot about the issue of criminal justice reform, um, having to do with uh, policing regulations, having to do with mandatory minimums, having to do with stricter sentences for violent uh, crimes. Um, we, we talk about presidents and governors, even mayors, having bully pulpits. Um, how would you assess Mr. Hogan's use of his bully pulpit when it came to trying to influence uh, policy uh, that was clearly uh, at odds with the policy that the local leaders uh, in the state's attorney's office and the mayor's office here in Baltimore uh, were pursuing? Well, Governor Hogan certainly used his bully bully pulpit frequently to criticize leadership in the city of Baltimore. I mean, this was a regular occurrence that the governor, you know, rained down criticism on the the mayors, the police commissioners, uh, you know, through his years and state's attorney Marilyn Mosby, um, whether he was, you know, just trying to, to score points politically or actually influence policy, you know, unclear. Uh, he... I don't think he hardly ever, if at all, met with State's Attorney Mosby. You know, he did meet periodically with Mayor Scott and his predecessors. The governor, you know, frequently talks about how he had, I think, four mayors of Baltimore in his eight years as governor. Um, uh, but, but you know, that was what he did very often. Um, you know, and it's it's one thing to sit in Annapolis and make that criticism versus being, you know, in Baltimore day to day making those difficult decisions about policing, about uh, prosecution. Um, uh, so there is some hope of, in some quarters of Baltimore that with Governor-elect Westmore coming in, he lives in Baltimore, that they, they might get a, a, a friendlier or more collaborative uh, relationship. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. Uh, a few days ago in Maryland Matters, the governor uh, did mention uh, criminal justice reform, saying that uh, Democrats, uh, he uh, accused them of simply repeating Democratic talking points about mass incarceration. He says they're completely wrong on the politics. He says, we do polling, uh, and it was in the 80s and even higher in Baltimore City and higher among black voters uh, to have these uh, stricter sentences for violent criminals. Um, when, when, when the governor says we do polling, Brian Sears, that is certainly the case. I mean, the, the, the governor made sure that he, uh, you know, took the temperature uh, of people throughout his time in office. Um, how do you think uh, the, the results of those polls informed uh, what he did over the past eight years? He, it seemed to me that he paid very close attention uh, to what his pollsters were telling him people were thinking about. 
Oh no, I think there's that there's no doubt that that he that he polled regularly. Um, he polled about issues that he frequently um, was either speaking about or planned on speaking about um, issues that he planned on taking up, and and I think that it absolutely informed his his takes on them, and I think that that in turn fed his um, already as noted uh, high popularity numbers. I mean, we, again, going back to those, um, uh, Tom, I've, I've I've seen a couple of two-term um, governors, and usually by the time we get to this point in in the second term, you know, Marylanders are ready for. That gov- for the current governor to leave, and Larry Hogan's numbers are just as high now a- as they probably ever have been. And and again, I think that's because he's keenly aware of of what the public temperature is on the issues that he's uh, he's going to be public about. Uh, it's also really interesting to um, to hear a- any uh, office holder assess uh, his or her own performance in office because sometimes it's it's difficult to um, uh, to sort of fact check it um, for example the governor has uh, often uh, mentioned that uh, he has reduced the prison population in the state of Maryland and this was a uh, one of those democratic talking points that he mentioned uh, in that interview um, having to do with the number of people incarcerated in Maryland. And in fact, uh, in 2018, the Vera Institute, uh, and this is reported by the Marshall Project, does say that Maryland had the largest drop uh, in the prison population of any state in the country. It was about 1,900 people uh, got out of state custody. But then uh, three years later, in 2021, uh, a group called the Prison Policy Initiative uh, gave Maryland a D-minus grade for its response to the coronavirus in prison, saying that they had opportunities to reduce the uh, the outbreak of coronavirus and, uh, for example, uh, suspend admissions to prisons uh, for people who violated uh, parole and probation, uh, stuff like that. Um, so it, it, it's difficult to... Uh, to sort of parse out sometimes what's true and what's not true. Um, is, is, is Larry Hogan, when it comes to uh, Pamela Wood, when, when it comes to you know, how he positions himself, do you expect uh, or have you seen in these latter months of this administration where uh, people, uh, where, where he's certainly considering running for national office, have you seen a shift to the right? Have you seen uh, a, a change in Mr. Hogan's approach to his brand? Uh, and is it, in your view, has that happened? And, and if so, is that a, a precursor to a, to a national run? Yeah, if I could start and just add one more thing about the governor's um, use of polling. Um, he often cites, you know, support for his policies based on this polling, but we don't ever get to see that data. We don't know how those questions are asked. You know, it, we don't know if they meet the standards of, say, you know, the Goucher poll or others that ask questions in a very neutral manner. They they, they might be leading or, or push questions. Um, you know, his, his record on criminal justice is very interesting. You know, early on he supported justice reinvestment, which got rid of some mandatory minimums, pu- pushed more low-level drug offenders into treatment rather than incarceration, um, kind of eased the path for parole in certain cases. But then he comes back with the Repeat uh, Offenders Act, you know, which would have some tougher sentences. So he's he's been a little over the map. And there there, there are good policy discussions to have about which which way to go, um, you know, what's the best for public safety. Um, 
And but but overall, in ter- in terms of his messaging, I I haven't seen a big rightward shift from him. I, I don't know if Brian has seen something different from me. I think he's been um, pretty consistent in in trying to have this um, not super far right wing, um, you know, persona. And uh, we have another email from William uh, who mentions the governor's uh, record on environmental enforcement. He says it's ground to a halt uh, under the governor and Ben Grumbles, who's the secretary of the environment. Uh, And he says the impact will be felt for years. Certainly, Brian Sears, uh, climate change and and environmental regulations uh, were not top of mind for Governor Larry Hogan. But how would you uh, assess his performance when it came to protecting the Bay, for example, and, uh, and other environmental issues? I mean, I, I, think, I think some of it's a little bit of a mixed bag, right? He, um, you know, he, he, he supported doing some things on, um, on, on controlling emissions as President Donald Trump was withdrawing from, you know, from the, the, the rest of the world. Um, he has been very interested in um, reducing sediment that comes out of the Susquehanna above the uh, above the the dam, um, you know, and on other issues. I mean, we do know that that enforcement there, you know, there have been complaints and concerns about enforcement. So I think it's a it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, and, and I'll just circle back to Pam's point about uh, moves for Larry uh, Larry Hogan to the to the right. To be honest with you, I, I'm not seeing that, and the governor seems to be as he always has been, which is you know maintaining this um, this middle of the road moderate um, persona that he has, and I think he 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 perceives that if there is a lane for him at the national level, that that's likely to be the lane, and he has described it more recently as being a, a lane that he thinks has widened a little bit. Um, we'll see. I, I'm, I'm to be honest with you, I'm not convinced. Based Based on the last election, that that Maryland Republicans or even National Republicans um, necessarily uh, necessarily would agree, but I would tell you that I think the governor has some uh, some significant tools in his tool bag um, that we've seen that, uh, when he ran for governor and. While I'm not sure he does, he's successful at the national level, I'm not ready to write him off yet. Brian Sears joins us on the phone from the State House in Annapolis. Pamela Wood covers politics for WIPR's partner news organization, the Baltimore Banner. She's with us on Zoom. You can join us as well on the phone. We're at 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday wypr. More on the legacy of Governor Larry Hogan after a quick break here on Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is your public radio, 88.1 WIPR. Welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Governor-elect Wes Moore will take the oath of office on Wednesday, January 18th. That's one week after the Maryland General Assembly begins its 2023 session. 
Attorney General Anthony Brown was sworn in at this hour as Maryland's first African-American Attorney General. Governor Larry Hogan swore him in. Uh, Mr. Hogan, of course, defeated Anthony Brown in the 2014 election to become the governor of Maryland. Delegate Brooke Learman will be sworn in as the first woman comptroller of our state on January 16th. If you've just joined us, we're looking back at the administration of Governor Larry Hogan and looking ahead to what the priorities of the Moore administration might be. My guests are Pamela Wood, who covers Annapolis for the Baltimore Banner, and Brian Sears, who covers government for the Daily Record. To join us, we're at 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wypr.org. You can tweet us at midday. WIPR. So, Pamela Wood, um, what about the relationship between uh, Governor Larry Hogan and his lieutenant governor, Boyd Rutherford? Uh, Do you think uh, it has differed uh, substantially from the relationship between, I don't know, Martin O'Malley and Anthony Brown, for example? Uh, And do you think it provides any models for the relationship that Wes Moore and Aruna Miller uh, may adapt when they are sworn in in a couple of weeks? Well, what's interesting about Maryland is that the role of lieutenant governor has almost no official duties uh, prescribed legally other than to take over for the governor, you know, if the governor you know, resigns or dies. So uh, Lieutenant Governor Boyd Rutherford has really had a pretty significant portfolio in the Hogan administration, um, you know, right off the bat when Governor Hogan was undergoing cancer treatments, uh, Lieutenant Governor Rutherford um, took on more responsibilities of overseeing the cabinet secretary and the departments. Um, he also did a lot of that during the you know worst early months of the pandemic. Um, the lieutenant governor also has worked on uh, opioid and heroin uh, problems, and he's he's really done a lot of um, handling board of public works meetings. That's a three member board that approves state contracts. And um, lieutenant governor Rutherford's background is in government procurement and contracting. He knows a lot about the nuts and bolts of government, and um, they they really do seem like partners. And now in in talking with Governor-elect Westmore and Lieutenant Governor-elect Aruna Miller, they they talk about having a similar kind of relationship. Uh, Moore says that he wants Miller to be the most consequential lieutenant governor uh, the state has seen. And, you know, Miller tells me she's uh, going to work on uh, transportation issues. That's her background. She's a transportation engineer, um, also uh, STEM education uh, and some other things. So, you know, we'll see. But they 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 you know, both sets of, of, of partners here, uh, you know, talk about having a meaningful role for the lieutenant governor. It, it can be easy for a governor to just, you know, push aside the lieutenant governor and not give them much to do. It's, it's really in their control. Yeah, and Brian Sears, uh, speaking of the Board of Public Works, it's going to be a very different situation uh, in a couple of weeks. I mean, uh, at present, we do have uh, two Democrats, Derek Davis, the treasurer, and Peter Francho, the controller. But Mr. Francho was often aligned with the Republican governor, Larry Hogan. Now we're going to have three Democrats. Um, And as a matter of fact, Barry Glassman, when he ran against Brooke Learman for controller, said, uh, that's dangerous. You should elect me because I'll bring some balance to the Board of Public Works. But we'll have Brooke Learman, uh, a liberal Democrat from Baltimore City. We'll have Wes Moore, uh, a liberal Democrat again from Baltimore City, and Derek Davis uh, as the treasurer on the Board of Public Works. Um, How do you think things uh, will change in that regard? Um, uh, look, I mean, I think I think at least initially on paper, I'm expecting that things will be a little quieter, maybe uh, a little less 
um, publicly contentious. But that being said, um, Derek Davis, for his short time on the uh, the Board of Public Works, and 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 I would say going back to his time as committee chair, um, the. Treasurer Davis asks a lot of really tough questions. He's 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 smart. It's clear that he's he's prepared when he comes into these meetings. And, and I've observed him asking um, uh, you know a lot of difficult questions. I don't know that we're going to see the same type of dynamic that we would typically see um, with the current comptroller, who was very quick to, um, to to call out contracts and want to hold things off and want to delay them or 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 kill them outright. Um, I, so I'm. I'm not anticipating that we'll see that, um, but I but I do think that there is a, a a role for Treasurer Davis to continue the tradition uh, of asking really difficult um, questions of, of secretaries and agency heads um, regarding contracts. By the way, uh, we are monitoring what's going on uh, on the floor of the House of Representatives in Washington. It does appear that there will be a floor vote for Speaker of the House uh, within the next few minutes. Kevin McCarthy needs 218 votes to be elected Speaker. Uh, As of this morning, uh, before he met with his caucus, did not appear he had those votes. It is possible that if he does not get the requisite number of votes to be elected speaker on the first round of balloting, that there would be another round of balloting. Whether that would happen today or on another day remains to be seen. But uh, again, here and now, we'll uh, have the latest on that, as will all things considered here on NPR and WYPR later in the day. So, um, uh, Pamela Wood, when it comes to Larry Hogan, uh, I've I've seen in uh, some published interviews that he has mentioned three things as the sort of standout things of his tenure in office. Uh, One uh, was the uh, handling of the uprising in 2015 after the death in police custody of Freddie Gray. The other was his handling of COVID. Uh, And the third was his handling of his own diagnosis of cancer. Um, How do you assess uh, what the the highlights, uh, if if you will, or the most important moments of the governor's tenure uh, are do you, do you agree with the governor himself that that those are are, are sort of the three uh, big moments uh, in his in these last eight years uh, or would you come up with a different list? Yeah, those those are definitely some of the highlights uh, Governor Hogan talks about, and and he also talks about all three of those in his uh, book, um, you know, at, at at length. And and actually, he he added a chapter about the pandemic at, at the last minute to his book while the pandemic was still happening. Those first few months, um, and and I think what's notable about those is of those three. One was a personal crisis, you know, cancer. And actually, I highly recommend the chapters in his book about that. It's very revealing. I think he's very candid there about how challenging that was. The other two, um, responding to the uprising after the death of Freddie Gray and the pandemic, were um, instances where he used his uh, executive and administrative power. You know, he got to be the person in charge and, and, and call the shots on things. They, they weren't things that he needed the General Assembly to come along with. They weren't things he needed to work with other people. And, and you know, we heard in both the pandemic and uh, post Freddie Gray, you know, concerns that he wasn't coordinating with local government uh, on those things. And I, I think that gives a little insight into his character that he really wants to be an executive 
you know, uh, the boss, a person in charge, um, that's where he feels most comfortable. Yeah. And Brian uh, Sears, I think Pamela makes a really good point about uh, not having to deal with the legislature when it came to, for example, handling the COVID crisis. So many people note his handling of that crisis as the the highlight for them. I think it had a lot to do with his getting reelected uh, the second time he ran. Um, we had certain figures really uh, percolate to the top during the COVID crisis. People like Andrew Cuomo in New York, whose uh, daily briefings were, were even televised nationally. Uh, certainly, Mr. Hogan held many, many daily briefings, and you went to uh, virtually all of them. Um, how would you rate his handling of the COVID crisis? We had a caller, you know, who mentioned the uh, the situation with the uh, test kits for uh, that he purchased from South Korea. He made a big big deal about that. They uh, they didn't work out uh, as well as uh, he expected they would, uh, and a lot of people fault him for not uh, sort of owning up to to, to that failure. But um, what's your take, and and how do you think people? Uh, have uh, assessed uh, the governor's handling of a clearly an unprecedented and very difficult crisis. Uh, I, look, I think you said it. I mean, by and large, I think in general, the, the, the public sentiment is by and large that he'd handled it very well. Um, the, the Korean test kit issue is probably one of the one of the, the, the few blemishes, um, if there are some. Uh, on that, uh, I, I think that that's been that's been an issue, and and perhaps he's not been. Um, I, I I think we we probably has not sort of fully uh, gone through the whole story publicly, um, but otherwise, you know, I, I think the other the other issues, you know, Republicans, especially conservative Republicans, frequently ding him on his you know on his use of executive authority on his, the you know closures. Um, mass, you know, the use of masks for a time. Um, uh, but again, by and large, the public generally accepted these, thought that they were, um, uh, thought that they were well used and thought that, you know, the executive authority that he was using for much of the early days, you know, the first year, year and a half of the pandemic um, was not, a, was not abused. And so, you know, I, I think in the end, like he did adjudicate himself well in that situation and that's how the public perceives it. And Pamela, uh, many people uh, are uh, very, uh, they, they very much applaud the governor for being uh, one of the first people out of the gate to oppose Donald Trump. Uh, he's been an anti-Trumper uh, for quite some time. Um, he he sort of avoided the Trump issue uh, when he was uh, running for re-election. He tried to, uh, and even when he was running for uh, his, his the first time, you know, talking about um, other things and saying he didn't know Donald Trump and Donald Trump didn't know him. But people applaud him for that. But people also tag him with being anti-Baltimore. Uh, there are people who say that he has been uh, almost openly hostile towards the city of Baltimore. He disagrees with that characterization. But uh, what do you think? Is that a fair criticism that he has not been uh, he has not been helpful and, in fact, has been antagonistic uh, towards the, the, the largest city in our state? Yeah, so I, I I think you're right. The Governor Hogan, you know, disagrees with that criticism. You know, he says he he loves Baltimore. He he wants the city to to, to thrive and recognizes it as an economic powerhouse. But 
when you look at his policy decisions, we've talked about the red line that, uh, for people who don't know, was an east, a proposed east-west rail line from Bayview in the east out to, I think, almost uh, you know Woodlawn in in the west, and it could have brought and and maybe it will come back, um, you know, significant significant opportunities to people. We also had this ongoing you know fighting about the the, the crime and violence strategy in the city. It, it's hard for people who, you know you know, sit in the city and love the city, seeing the governor, you know, make decisions that don't help the city um, and, and then actively criticize the city all the time. It, it's it's hard for people to sit in that in, in that place and, and take that and not, you know, think negatively about the governor. And Brian Sears, in our last minute or so, um, there is a shortage of workers in state government. As a matter of fact, uh, Pamela Wood wrote uh, just a couple of days ago that during the the governor's uh, tenure, 2,800 positions have been eliminated and another 7,800 positions are vacant. There are a lot of people uh, who complain about the shortage of workers throughout uh, state government. He just uh, did sign a a contract with the largest state workers union. Uh, They're not all that happy with it. But um, when it comes to uh, the mechanics of state government, um, how do you think uh, Mr. Hogan uh, fared in that regard? Uh, look, I mean, I think when you talk about some of the vacancies, I mean, some of them are, are you know, I think attempts, I mean, it's it, to keep down, you know, to, to keep the budget under control. Um, but certainly, I mean, one of the things that we're seeing nationally is is that many state and county governments are now having the same problem that private employers are having in terms of finding in terms of finding workers. That's going to be a real challenge for Maryland moving forward, and certainly for the incoming governor who has to deal with some issues related to parole and probation and um, and the correction you know the correction system, which has some of the, the some significant um, shortfalls in, in open positions. Sure. Um, yeah, you know, so I, so I think I, I think that you know some of these challenges um, are are outside necessarily the control of any governor, um, and and we're going to continue to see them over the next four years. All right, Brian Sears covers Annapolis for the Daily Record. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Pamela Wood covers government and politics for the Baltimore Banner. Thank you, Pamela. Thanks, Tom. And by the way, Brian Sears will host the annual Eye on Annapolis conversation with Governor-elect Wes Moore, Senate President Bill Ferguson, and Speaker of the House Adrian Jones a week from tomorrow in Annapolis on the first day of the 2023 General Assembly session. Come to our website. We'll have a link to that event. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, it's Midday with the Mayor. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. You're listening to Your Public Radio, 88.1 WYPR.